sure all those are on. So I am technically recording. Whoops. I was afraid of that. Turn that off. And turn this off. Alright, and then back up. Recording. On. And we'll be starting in five, four, three, two. What's up, everybody? Jay Miller here, bringing another productivity in tech podcast. My guest this week, wow, my guest this week is Lee Warwick. Lee is someone that I actually just met. We're doing this a lot right now. By the way, I'm Jay Miller. I am a developer, entrepreneur, business owner, automator, multi-potentialite do a lot of things. And the thing that interested me about Lee so much is that he does a lot of things as well. Uh, In fact, when I invited him onto the show, his first excuse was, I can't be productive. I have 8,000 things that I'm doing. To which my response was, if you're doing 8,000 things, you have to be doing at least something right. So Lee is a front-end developer with Realtruck.com by day. And then when he leaves the day job, he is an organizer for the Orlando's Project Code Experience Meetup. He's also the co-host of the Tech Junior podcast, which I was thinking like Orlando, Nickelodeon, Nick Jr., Tech Junior. I'm sure it's not going to be that, but we'll get there. And... He has a very interesting story, but I'm not going to be the one to tell it. Lee, how are you doing today? I'm great. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. It is a pleasure to meet another person who is so engaged in the community and trying to uh, increase your own knowledge, experience, but also enlighten, entertain, inform all of the other people around that are in your shoes circa a few years ago. Absolutely. So let's start off by uh, getting the backstory of what got you to where you are today as a developer. So it's a a long and and winding road. Um, But uh, I guess it could start out um, in my first like ever time touching code. Uh, if you remember those graphing calculators from you know high school or middle school, uh, I learned how to do like functions in those, so I could solve like uh, the Pythagorean theorem or something. I thought that was neat, and so going from there, I had always been like a computer person. Uh, got into college, went to the University of Florida, um, got into computer science there, um, and I started with Java, and it was absolutely miserable. I hated it. Uh, I don't feel like I I learned anything when I was uh, actually taking that that course. Um, The instructor was miserable. So I basically gave up on it, switched to um, another passion of mine, which was Japanese language. Got a degree in that. Um, Did a year as an exchange student in Osaka, uh, Japan. And then from there, came back to the States, graduated, um, became a firefighter and a paramedic uh, for four and a half years, and then a registered nurse uh, working in critical care, uh, emergency and surgical areas. And then that whole time kind of just still thought in the back of my mind, man, I wish I was coding. 
And so I uh, found my way to a coding boot camp, um, went to the UCF coding boot camp here in Orlando, Florida. I uh, did really well on that and got hired pretty much straight out of that. Very cool. And the rest of this conversation will be based on your next answer. What's your position on anime? I love it. Absolutely love it. All right. Cool. <laughs> we are, uh, I, I used to do a podcast called Devataku with uh, a couple other people in the cafe. And we started through Cowboy Bebop. For me, it was like my third time through it. Uh, for some, it was like their first time. And we never finished it because we got to, we got probably to about like the last four episodes. And one of the hosts was just like, no, no, I'm done. <laughs> so we're, we're now looking for what's that next show going to be that we're going to binge stream and just watch and then just record all the episodes in one big marathon and then we'll release them weekly or something. We think it's going to be Agritsuko. Okay. Yeah, I'm familiar. That's, uh, that's or cool. Assassination Classroom. I haven't watched that one, but I'm aware of it. Very good. Actually, shout out to Netflix. They've got a lot of really good animes that they just added. Um, Evangelion is on there now. I was just going to say that. You guys should maybe binge Ava. And then uh, you'll really have a good time with the last couple episodes. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Ava is one of like my favorite like animes, so it would hurt me. But yeah, we're not here to talk about anime, even though this is good conversation for the after show. <laughs> or I guess for the bonus episode that goes to our premium members. But yeah, you mentioned that you started as a developer, well, at least in school, with like the idea of wanting to be one. And then said, eh, not for me. And then went to do this other thing. But then the developer in you kept trying to break out. Yeah. So, um, like I said, I started with Java. And uh, funny story, um, I think it's been, what, uh, 10 years now? No, 12 years now since I started with Java. I just now, maybe a month ago, can say that I fully understand public static void main after taking it for an entire year in university. So, um, I, I, like I said, I absolutely, uh, did not enjoy, um, coding in kind of like the classical setting. Um, I did all my coding on notepad, uh, .exe. Um, and then I took all my tests for that course on a piece of paper with a pencil. So like writing code and curly brackets and all that garbage with, uh, with a pencil was pretty miserable as well. Um, but yeah, one day I was in uh, the emergency room in the trauma center here uh, in Ocala, and I was doing free code camp stuff because I had a little bit of downtime. Just kind of like, oh, you know, I hear a lot of buzz about Python. Let me try and do some Python. And my boss came out and she was like looking over my shoulder and she goes, Lee, what are you doing? I was like, oh, you know, just kind of checking out some programming stuff because that's always been an interest of mine. And she just came, kind of gave me like this disappointed mom look and was like, well, Lee, you know, nursing. You got to want it. And then in the back of my mind, I was like, you know what? You're right. I don't want this. <laughs> so <laughs> I kind of, I kind of Googled around and I came across this coding bootcamp thing. And I was like, first reaction, this is a scam and they're going to take all my money. <laughs> and, uh, for whatever reason I signed up for it and did it and it turned out to not be a scam. So 
So are you still using Python in your day-to-day -day now? Uh, I'm not. Um, I'm a JavaScript person. Um, I am a huge admirer of Wes Boss with his JavaScript belt. I think I want like a jacket or boots or something. Um, but I'm looking to branch out in other languages now that I feel like I've got a solid handle on JavaScript. Uh, and I'm definitely looking at Python. So see, I'm like the exact opposite. I'm Python first. And then when it gets to doing front end stuff, it's like, well, let me just load view from a CDN and then <laughs> work with it that way. I am not a node person. I don't know what it is about node that just throws me off, but it's not just you. Okay, good. Front end development is just a jungle. Um, it has kind of started out, you know, classically as this very simple thing or very pure thing of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And it's, you know, you load your script tags, you load your style tags in your document, and you're kind of ready to go. But uh, over the years, it's just become more and more complicated. And now we're dealing with Webpack and Babel and TypeScript and ES modules, uh, CommonJS, and just a whole lot of headache for anybody that's trying to get into it. I think that's the big thing. That's the thing that makes me love Python so much still to this day. It's the fact that code that I wrote when I first started learning Python was not good code, but the good or better code that I write some six, seven years later doesn't look that much different. It's it doesn't take a lot to go from I'm a total noob with Python to I at least write code that other developers can look at, understand what's happening and not be afraid to use in their own applications. Python always throws me because, um, first of all, like having a lot of experience with C languages, um, not having curly braces is kind of mind blowing. And then on top of that, like all the underscores everywhere just completely like melt my face off. So uh, I'm really interested in it, especially since um, at my current uh, workplace, we use Pug and Silas uh, a whole lot. So everything is kind of indent based already, except for the JavaScript. So I've come to really like that. And I think it's really good. And I haven't had to close off a tag and like hunt that down in a while, which is really nice. So um, I'm warming up to the idea of, of getting into Python. I think that'd be fun. And if you have any questions, then you got people. Yeah, so. I will trade you JavaScript advice for Python advice all day long. <laughs> I don't know if I'm winning on that one. <laughs> so yeah, you had a long journey to get back into development. What was it like taking some of the skills that you had gained outside of the industry and either tossed them away or implemented them as a new front-end developer? So probably the biggest thing that I, I really got out of uh, being a fireman and a nurse is learning to talk to people. And not only learning to talk to people, but learning to talk to people in incredibly miserable and uncomfortable situations for both myself and them. So showing up at people's houses in the middle of the night, uh, coming into their you know hospital room to help them out, uh, really difficult and embarrassing situations. 
um, and just having to be very empathetic and uh, sympathetic to people. Um, you know, as a kid, I was very, very shy. I uh, didn't like people or crowds or, you know, typical introverted developer type of person. And um, you really have to get over that fast as a uh, somebody that's working in the public and as a public servant. So um, I still bring that with me to development. Um, I am quick to go out and try and talk to people. And even if they're like huddled at their desk and don't want to look up and they're kind of like shy or I'm hosting the meetup or something and you know, people are just kind of like milling about and not saying anything, I'll try and introduce myself and, and say hello. Even though it's still a struggle for me, uh, I really want to try and, and help people get over that and, and start, you know, networking and branching out and meeting other people and other developers. How important has that connection part that getting involved in the community, getting others to get involved in the community? How important in your opinion is that for developers? Because like you mentioned, most developers are very introverted. They're not the type that are going to connect with others on their own, at least until they realize. And another reason why I love the Python community so much is they're so welcoming and so inviting. But people don't know that until they are kind of pushed into it a little, or I guess nudged into it. Um, how important is it that they get that community connectivity? Um, professionally, uh, I think it's very helpful, uh, if not necessary. But uh, the days of you sitting at a desk and writing an entire program by yourself are kind of long gone. Uh, most software nowadays is very complicated. It requires a team effort to get it done. And hey, if you're on a team, what's important? Communication. So that aspect of the job, um, maybe people don't think of it straight off the bat, but says it's very important. Um, as far as networking goes for developers, I think it's, it's very important because the community is maybe the best part of being a developer. You know, you can go find developers, random people on Twitter, on Slack, whatever, and say, hey, I'm having a problem, can you help? And yeah, there's some internet tough guys that'll maybe say something uh, snarky or something snappy, whatever. But for the most part, people are very helpful and welcoming. So um, not taking advantage of that seems like a misstep. And I really want to try and spread, you know, that, that message that hey, you know, and and really, if you look at you know a lot of developers and some of their interests that overlap, um, there's a lot of gaming communities and stuff where people get together and they, you know connect online or in person and go to these events and stuff. And it shouldn't be any different for development, really. We're all excited about the same stuff, like, you know, get hyped about Python and no curly braces or, you know, hey, man, I built a Flask app. You want to check it out? Yeah, man, show me. So um, and really what happens is once you get into that, that mindset and that mode of connecting with people and networking, you're going to increase the opportunities that you're exposed to. So maybe you make a great friend that taught you how to learn Python, for instance, and that person then comes to you in a month or two months or a year and says, Hey, you know, I've got a job opening on my team. Do you want to, you know, apply? 
And you wouldn't get that from just sitting at your desk, not talking to anybody and just firing off resumes to Indeed. So um, I think it's a really overlooked thing and certainly has some bad press uh, in the past, but is definitely nowadays, I feel like it's getting a whole lot better to be a developer. I absolutely agree. And I would definitely mention that, as I said before, um, which if you're a premium member, you heard this. If not, that probably got edited out. But we had a connection, not just over Python, but over anime and our, you know, appreciation for it. And the thing with that is I'm not the only one. In fact, I've done podcasts with other developers who like anime, different kinds of anime even. So like I was able to not only connect with people over a similar topic, but also learn from them from a development side, but also get some really good show recommendations out of it. (laughs) So speaking of good shows, you are the co-host of the tech junior podcast. What, what is that? So, um, I guess to answer that, uh, I'll have to step back into when I was still in the bootcamp. So when I first started the bootcamp, we kind of, the first day, everybody stood up and said what their profession was and kind of what their experiences were. And so we had everything from like a legit sysadmin DBA person who already had a computer science degree who was in the course, um, all the way through like, uh, a girl that, um, she made the, uh, the mascot heads at Disney. So like did all the repairs and like, you know, uh, recreated them and stuff. So just everybody from all walks of life, every experience level, people that had experience with code, people that didn't. Um, and that just kind of blew me away. And partway through the boot camp, um, I was doing pretty well. I made some friends and they had asked me about starting like an agency or something together. And so I, I said, okay, sure. And that turned into project code experience. Um, we kind of realized that we're a little inexperienced. Maybe it's not realistic to take on freelance work straight out the, uh, out the gate. And so he said like, well, why don't we start doing a meetup? Because, you know, community involvement seems to be like a really big deal in, in the tech industry. So why not do that? And then on top of that, there is no junior developer meetup in Orlando. So we did that. And then uh, from there, kept going with the meetup, got involved at work with uh, doing some talks um, and then kind of thought, why don't I do a podcast? You know, Hey, everybody has a podcast nowadays. Right. So, um, a coworker of mine, some of good us friend, have too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, good friend of mine, um, coworker, Eddie, uh, Otero. Um, I met him at the first job that I had out of the boot camp, and he had always come out to the meetup and was recording our talks and like producing them, uh, for YouTube. So, he was like very involved and I said, Hey man, would you be interested in doing a podcast? And he said, yeah. And Eddie's like way more shy and has like, (laughs) he's like antisocial a little bit, doesn't want to talk. Um, and so he's, he just, he was like, yeah, I really need to work on that. So why don't we do this thing? And so kind of taking that spirit of helping junior developers forward, I was like, I'm a junior. I wish I had better resources when I first started. Why don't I be that person that can produce those, those resources and pass on the stuff that I've learned. And then on top of that, I still have that perspective of not knowing anything about anything. 
So why not take that perspective and go interview people from the industry and say like, Hey, can you just break it down for me? Because I don't understand, you know, things the way that you do as a 10 year veteran of the industry, you know, people start talking about like Gatsby for instance, and then they're talking about MDX and, uh, remark and prism JS and all this stuff. And I'm like, Whoa, 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 what, what are those things? You know, can you, can you bring me up to that, that level that you're at and, and kind of up to speed on all these topics? So, um, a huge, really, really great show that does that is syntax FM. And I listened to that like every day that I drove down to the boot camp cause it was like an hour and a half drive. And, um, just listening to those guys break down all these topics really prepared me for interviews because when I started interviewing, I didn't know anything. And so they would ask me like, uh, Hey Lee, what's dependency injection? Gosh, I have no idea. But then listening to syntax, it would cover something like that. And every time that they reach a certain point, they would go, Hey, for anybody that doesn't know dependency injection is, you know, whenever you have, uh, an app that depends on a third party library, don't call that library all throughout everything. Um, isolate it in one spot, make a wrapper for it. And then that way, if you ever want to swap that out, swap in your other third party library, and it's very easy to change out dependencies. Oh man, fantastic. You know, now I can rattle that off in an interview thanks to listening to that kind of stuff. So that's kind of the whole ethos around uh, the, the Tech Junior podcast. And, you know, that's something that everyone is in a different position. I, I think there are senior developers who have some junior tendencies. And in some areas, there are junior level developers that because of their desire to learn more or having good leadership or good mentorship, they have the traits of experienced senior development. And I do wish we would get rid of these titles only for that reason. I always feel like the separation of experience through a job title is only an excuse to limit pay or to enforce a policy. And I empathize with those people. And this is coming from someone who has never held an official developer role. And the reason being is every interview I've gone to for a junior developer role, they say, you're overqualified we don't want to hire you because you'll be gone in a year, you know, doing the stuff that we would have a junior developer do. But then when I go to a mid-level developer or a senior level, a senior level developer role, they say, you don't have the experience. Why don't you apply for a junior level role? And it's yeah. that vicious cycle. Yeah, the uh, I wish we could throw away senior junior um, titles and also full stack titles because that's kind of dumb in my opinion. I feel like all that stuff is just kind of an HR construct to put people into different slots. And development is an incredibly complex field. Uh, there's a you know three million technologies to work with. Some people are really good at some. 
um, versus, you know, completely brand new to others. So you may have a, a absolute expert at Go that could write a Lambda function in AWS, uh, you know, in her sleep, but then thrown a CSS change ticket or something would completely flounder. And, you know, maybe to one company, that's a senior developer. To another company, that's a full stack developer, just because she's willing to touch CSS. Um, and then to another one, you know, that would be a junior front-end developer or something. So these titles don't really mean anything uh, to me. It's just kind of like a way to qualify or quantify, you know, people and then shove them into some kind of bracket for human resources to, you know, oh, well, you deserve this much money or, you know, you deserve this much, I don't know, responsibility of the job or something like that. And, you know, it's just not that easy to, I guess, grade a person's value as a developer that way. And so that kind of bleeds into, you know, how terrible interviewing is a developer uh, or applying for jobs where you get like these job requirements that are, you know, made for some kind of like Hercules of development that knows eight different technologies that came out last year and has 10 years of experience in them. So, I mean, I could go on all day about how terrible uh, of a disservice that we're doing to junior developers. There's a YouTube channel. Um, I don't, I'll put it in the show notes because one, I can't remember the full name of it and I don't want to give it that disservice, but I was listening to it Friday and they were talking about that. They went on like Indeed and looked at all of the different junior developer job titles or job descriptions and they were ridiculous. Like half of them were underpaying people and asking for way too many recommendations for the pay that they were offering. And, you know, they all had that same 401k full benefits. And it's like, okay, every company, in my opinion, if you're hiring people, you should be wanting to take care of those people. So that's like a minimum requirement for me. That's not like a bonus. Right. So yeah, the, um, the, the job postings out there are just so low quality and we as an industry have kind of shot ourselves in the foot with junior developers. And it's funny that you talk about people looking up junior developer positions. Uh, I wonder if you can even find any because looking at indeed and you type in junior developer, you might get like a handful of postings. So I actually saw an article the other day that was like, what killed the junior developer? Um, and I think we've got this practice now where uh, companies don't want to be the person to take on new people and train them. And instead they just want to poach, you know, people that already have experience from other companies and bring them in and like entice them with, Hey, we have a ping pong table. Hey, we have a beer tap. Hey, we will pay you another $10,000 a year, which doesn't break out to, you know, that much money. And, um, people fall for it or they get tired of where they're at. And it's so easy to change jobs as a developer because there's so many positions that kind of once you're in, you can make those moves really easily. And so now we've got this system where we don't embrace the people that are coming up, you know, in the industry and train them and turn them into great engineers. We just expect great engineers to materialize out of nowhere and then try and like fight each other to death to recruit them. Well, we have that and many of the issues with, I would say, the big business side and their lack of wanting to be transparent 
about how things are done. Um, I know there are companies that and people that we've had on the show that talk about. I can't tell you who I work for because. By doing that, I put myself in danger of losing my job where, you know, for you, the fact that you mentioned the name of the company that you work for in your bio, I was just like, wow, like that's not something you see all the time. Like I almost wanted to ask at the beginning, like, is it okay if I use the employer name? I honestly can't tell you. Um, I haven't run it by marketing or anything yet, but uh, I would assume that they would be happy for me to go out there and kind of spread the good name for the company. But I've also worked for another company that was not okay with that. So I definitely understand what you're saying. We'll just say all the views and opinions on this podcast are those held by the people speaking and not by any of the companies they represent. That was a brilliant disclaimer. Have you practiced that? (laughs) Only once or twice. (laughs) Awesome. So, yeah, this is, you know, we're, we're talking about this whole junior developer issue and I want to ask you, you mentioned in your bio that you are wanting to pay forward all the help that you receive tenfold. Do you feel like you're at tenfold now? I mean, if you're doing 8,000 things. I don't really think that I'm there yet, but I'm, I'm trying. Um, obviously I'm doing the podcast. I'm trying to like collect my thoughts and experiences, put them down. I'd like to start a blog soon, but I haven't circled back around to it. Um, I'm running the meetup. I'm trying to get, you know, good quality, uh, presentations and talks for junior developers that are you know in Orlando and then also record those and put them online on YouTube so people can watch them and enjoy those, uh, those quality, um, educational resources, regardless of if they live in Orlando or not. But uh, I still feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, Like I said before, the industry is not really welcoming to junior developers unless you're a giant company like Microsoft or something and you can afford to have a a massive system in place to just like create this junior mill or something where you hire people straight out of college and have, you know, them do grunt work and stuff and try and train them up. But uh, that's definitely not the norm. And I think a lot of companies are very, very shy to pull the trigger on hiring on a junior developer because they think, like you said before, oh, they're just going to leave in a year or, oh, they're going to wreck my code base. And those things are just not true. Um, I'm actually trying to get um, some conference talk proposals written and sent out to do a whole presentation on this because um, I've just done a lot of reading on it. And there's a lot of pushback against that from developers that are kind of waking up and realizing, uh, first of all, we're going to run out of senior engineers eventually. They're going to retire or get burned out. And then second of all, um, it's actually a good thing to have juniors on your development team. Um, Nobody's telling you like you have to go hire a bunch of one-year experience people, but having a few of them on your team is a really good resource. And it's a good opportunity for not only them, but um, your code base and for your senior developers on the team. I mentioned this in the... uh last podcast that we had with Jonathan Megan, he asked one of the key things I learned being in the military. And just in my experience, the biggest thing was you learn by doing, you master by teaching. Yeah. Um, And that was, that was something that 
I had to adopt relatively early in my, I guess, my life. Um, just because, you know, when you're a leader in your early 20s and you're doing like mission critical work to keep lives alive, then you realize you don't want to be the only person. Because when you're the only person and things inevitably go wrong, all they can do is look and they shouldn't. You should never be in that position to begin with. But it's the nature of the and that's something that I can't remember the name of the PyCon talk that I just watched earlier, but I will also add it to the show notes about doing pre-modems and pre-mortems and post-mortems on projects and using a lot of developer empathy skills as defined by April Wenzel and Compassionate Coding. Great friend of mine, uh, someone that I talk to on a regular basis now. But the more people that you can get involved in your code, the less likely errors will happen. Whether they're juniors, whether they're seniors, doesn't matter. The more eyes you have on code, the more visibility you have. And the more that you're able to show someone why you did a thing, you will wind up answering questions that you didn't think you had to answer and that you had never wondered, well, why do I do it this way? And it not only makes your junior developers, quote unquote, better, it makes all of your developers better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just kind of going back to my experiences with the fire department. Um, it's a paramilitary organization, uh, but we would do a lot of drills. Um, we would do a lot of training um, because, you know, things are critical. And, you know, some people just weren't very into it, um, especially like on the medical side of things. But uh, gosh, it's it's just so important to have this um, mentality of training is good and communication is good and teamwork is good because, you know, all of those things are, are going to make you more successful just in, in what you're doing. And with coding, um, if you are, let's say, going back to, you know, junior developers and senior developers on a team, uh, if you have junior developers and let's say that the senior developer um, works on a ticket or something and then you do a code review and you include the junior developer, the junior developer looks at that code and goes, uh, hey, Jay, um, why did you write this function this way? And then that forces Jay to go, well, gosh, why did I do that? And then they have to explain it and then kind of reason about it. And then that exposes a lot of confusing code and code that's not maintainable, code that's not reusable. Um, and it just forces people to take a more critical look at what they're doing and realize like, oh man, I didn't realize at the time, but this was kind of clever and not really good code you know, by, by our standards. And another thing is uh, juniors will come in and make a lot of mistakes. Um, you know, naturally as inexperienced developers. And so they'll come in and let's say they put a class name on something and it wrecks the whole code base. You know, 
that's something that is not their fault. That's your fault for writing code that's so brittle that a junior can come in and, you know, one line takes down the whole program. So why are, why are they even posting that directly into production without it being tested? Yeah, exactly. So like you want those things to be found early and juniors are really great for that. Like they can be that code canary that comes in and messes things up and, and kind of takes things for a whirl. And, um, it's really good to catch those things early on instead of shipping it to production. And then, you know, all your senior engineers that write perfect code can't figure out what happened. So, um, there, and there's just so many ways to debunk these like myths of how juniors are going to wreck your code base and, and they're just going to leave in here and, and all this. Um, it's just so silly of an argument that uh, I just can't believe that people just accept it. Well, I wasn't expecting the conversation to go in this direction, but I am glad that it did. I think that we definitely have made a very good argument for the removal of the concept of junior developers as a way to limit uh, whether it's compensation or access. And I think what we need to do is start treating every developer based on their knowledge as it pertains to the project, putting them either in the hands of a mentor to help increase their knowledge or giving them someone to mentor so that they may not only increase someone else's knowledge, but increase their own. Yeah. Um, as far as experience goes, I've never been asked, uh, as an interviewer or as an interviewee about like, you know, specific things that I can do in a language or, or something like that. It's always, I ask them, what are you looking for in an, you know, in the ideal employee? And everybody says without fail passion. And they say that because it's so important to have people on your team that love to learn because we all have to learn continuously every day. And it doesn't matter if you've been doing it for five years or one year or six months, or you've never been on a team before you have to love learning and you have to love teaching so that kind of everybody can grow as a team together. Um, my, my CEO even came in the other day or not CEO CTO. Um, and he said over my shoulder, uh, you know, talking about my boss. Yeah, he's a good guy. Um, he goes home and codes or, or something to that effect. And I love people that kind of eat, breathe and sleep it. And so um, I kind of like understand what he's getting at. I don't like the thought of like somebody working some 18 hour day coding or something silly, but uh, kind of going back to the fire department, when I was in fire school, I had a uh, instructor stand up in front of us and he said, you guys have to be students of the game. And I was like, that's dumb. That doesn't make any sense. And so he started talking about like, oh, on my days off, I read magazines. I, I have like firehouse, you know, daily um, that I read on the John and I go to fire conferences and I'm part of like all these um, like organizations and meetups and conferences and, and all this, this stuff. And it's just what he's trying to get at is that you have to be immersed in it. You have to love it in order to do well at it. And development is definitely that kind of industry. You can't just phone it in and, and kind of like show up and do your tickets and, and whatever. I mean, there's plenty of people out there that do that, but that's not the way that you're going to be like wildly successful at it. And that's not the way that you're going to have an amazing team at work if people are just kind of showing up and phoning it in. So you really need to, to be engaged and like 
you have to love the industry and love what you're doing if you're going to be the person to take those extra steps and to do those extra things to be successful. See, I, I want to agree, but also disagree with a little bit of that. I agree that you have to have a passion for what you're doing. Obviously, I've been doing podcasts for going on four years now. And as a fellow podcaster yourself, these things don't pay very well, but they do take a lot of time. And I could tell you that, oh, I eat, sleep and breathe podcasting. And if I want to be the best podcaster ever, I got to give up Python and give up all this stuff and not go to North Bay. And instead, I got to go to PodCon up in Seattle. That's just not. I think and and I think you said this. I just want to clarify. But I think that what companies, in my opinion, should want is someone that's going to show up that is ready to learn, that is ready to get engaged, work as a team and make things happen. And I think what that person does outside of work is on them. I do feel like developers who love programming are going to write code. They're going to love learning about code, whether it's during hours or off hours. I think that's going to happen. But I think the idea that we need to enforce people having to go and get committed outside of their daily expectations, I think that's a violation of letting that person just be them. And to me, I think individual creativity trumps skill every time. I don't want the best developer in the world writing code on sanitation maintenance. Yes, the city will smell great. The trucks will all run on time. But if that person was able to be a little creative outside of his day job, maybe they want to be, I don't know, someone that writes games or someone that wants to get into machine learning. Give them the ability to do that. Like no one should be so focused on their job that it takes them out of living. So I think what you're describing is like uh, kind of the inverse perverted uh, kind of notion. <laughs> like if corporate America kind of took this idea and was like, yes, this is a good idea. We should mandate that everybody does code out outside of work and off hours. And you must yes. turn in your own creative project to us once a week. Uh, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you have to be this person. I'm just saying that um, you do have to like what you do. And I think if you are that person that likes coding, it's going to happen organically. You know, you're going to be looking at articles. It's, it's happened to me and I see it happen over and over again. Like people are just interested in this stuff and they like it. And so they, you know, they read about it on Twitter. Um, they see it on, you know, blogs or, or whatever. And they watch YouTube videos um, just kind of like, oh man, that looks interesting. Let me check that out. 
And that, that stuff happens naturally. It's not something that you should go home and force yourself to do. If you're having to force yourself to learn code, you need to take a hard look and say like, is this really for me? Do I really like coding? Or is this something that I kind of got sold on through the marketing? Like I saw people playing ping pong, ping pong at work at Google and sitting in cool chairs. So I thought I wanted to be an engineer, but I really don't, you know, um, it's not always that glamorous and we do have issues like burnout in the industry. And so I'm not trying to tell you that you need to go force yourself to be this superhuman uh, engineer that does like 24 hours of coding a day. But if you love it, then you're probably going to do well at it because, you know, you just kind of naturally come across all of these things and go down these rabbit holes when you're learning stuff. Um, so maybe if we were going to talk about workplace, um, I appreciate companies that let their engineers have time to explore during the workday things that they're passionate about. So if you're into web development, maybe like learn how to build PWAs or web components or something, you know, for a couple hours on a Friday and that your team is kind of uh, cognizant enough to understand the importance of that and exploration and in, in life as a developer. So uh, I think there's definitely ways to foster that creativity and allow it to happen at work. And you can definitely benefit from it as an employer without kind of torturing your employees and saying like, okay, guys, you need to go home and code or, or something crazy like that. And, and again, I 100% on you with that. I just wanted to clarify because who knows who's going to listen to this, take it to their boss and then be like, well, Lee said that we should be all coding outside of work. So <laughs> <laughs> again, Everything said here are the views expressed by those listening and not by those of our employers, future employers, so forth and so on. Well, Lee, I've enjoyed this conversation, but we do have an after show to get to. So before we do that, two things. One, let me remind everybody, this has been a great conversation. We've talked a lot about what junior developers are going through and what we can do as a community to improve it, as well as being engaged and connected in that community. And if you want to hear more about that, and you want to hear more about whatever questions Lee is going to come up for me, then you have to be a premium member. And the reason I tell you that is because who knows where it's going to go. It might go into anime. It might go into grilling outside or something. I don't know. I haven't seen these questions, but I know that they're going to be great because I've got a great podcaster on the line with me. So if you're interested in these questions or any of the other questions that have been asked by my previous guests, go to productivityintech.com slash memberships, become a member today. You not only get access to all of that content, you also get access to the premium ooh, group in our Slack community. Slack community itself is free. Premium group, that's where we really talk stuff. That's how we talk about Pit as a business, Pit as a podcast, Pit as a brand. Like you are the people helping make Pit what it is on a daily basis. And you also get a weekly check-in from me. I, I promise to reach out to you at least once a week. That is until we have a million people and then I might have to hire someone to do that. I only got enough time in the week. But yeah, that's productivityintech.com slash memberships for that. 
And the last thing, Lee, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Where can people find you and all the awesome things that you're up? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Lee Warwick Jr. You can find the podcast at TechJR Podcast. Uh, you can find our website with our show notes and all of our previous episodes at techjunior.dev. Uh, you can talk to Eddie, my co-host, at ed0ter0. Um, and then you can also email me if you have any questions or concerns or you need help as a junior developer. I want to look at your resume or, or whatever. I'm happy to help. And my email address is leewarwick at gmail.com. All right. Thank you so much, Lee, for being a guest. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was really fun. I can't wait to blast you with questions in the uh, after show. Oh, we're going to get there. But before we do that, I got to thank the people that helped make this show. Again, that's all my members. You know who you are. Thank you very much. If you want to learn more about this or if you have a podcast or video content that needs an editor, I am looking for clients and you can go to productivityintech.com for that. And of course, thank you to Nadir Omawale for the use of his music, A Hustler in Spite of Myself, for the intro and outro music. And for Lee, myself. Oh, sorry. One more thing. If you want to get in touch with me, you got to follow me on Twitter or just send me an email, but probably follow me on on Twitter, yeah. Just, just don't email me, just do Twitter. I'm at KJY Miller. And of course, you can keep up with all things productivity and tech at prod underscore in underscore tech. Now, for Lee, myself, and productivity and tech, I'm Jay Miller. I hope we've been productive, and I will talk to you next week. All right, Lee, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Do you want me to uh, do a separate recording? or? Nope. Just keep running it. Keep and, rolling. And keep rolling. Here's my spiel. So at the end of every show, I've asked a bunch of questions, talked a lot. still got some talking to do, but I'm out of questions. So in order to make that happen, I got to pass the host baton to you and let this now be your show to ask me whatever questions you like for as long or as little as you like. But for right now, the show is yours. All right, so uh, I get to be the host then? This is all you, man. All right. Um, so I don't want to do, I guess, too much about your backstory and kind of what you do as an engineer. Uh, you probably uh, covered that ground over and over again. But uh, if you could just really, really quick tell me uh, kind of what you do daily as a developer. Uh, as an employee to my employer or just for fun and my own personal business both really quick okay so day job stuff i work with a lot of infor products for uh, a large distributor of sanitation products on the west coast and yeah that's kind of boring so i so find ways to make story, it interesting huh? In the, uh, I mean, in the normal show. <laughs> I thought that was a made up person that was working for a sanitation I'm, department, but it's you. <laughs> we we do more cleaning products than actual like sanitation trucks and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So in my off time, I am writing code that I feel should exist in the world and solves a problem that I might have. Who knows what it is that day. Can you tell me what your primary tech stack is? 
Um, I'm mostly in the Python area, as we talked about. I love static page generation. So, but I also love Flask. So right now, what I'm playing with is a custom static site generator that I built called Render Engine. And the thing that separates it from Pelican and some of these other Python-based uh, generators is that it uses Flask-like routing to generate its pages, which takes a lot of that cruft out of the body and moves it into a route package so you can call variables, add plugins, and do it all from the Python side and then have it generated as static HTML. Cool. So um, as a junior developer guy and advocate, um, I just kind of want to get into Python a little bit. So um, it sounds like Python has its own ecosystem. Uh, obviously, Flask and Django are great web server technologies. Um, I guess they also have static site generators, like uh, Node has Gatsby and uh, Gridsome and Jekyll and all that, uh, all those great frameworks. Um, so you said Pelican, and I guess there's some other ones? So Pelican's probably the biggest one. There is another one called Pyramid, and... I'm trying to remember the, oh, I can't remember the name of it. I know a lot of Python applications these days are really trying to go towards like microservice and like micro routes and stuff. So you have Falcon and um, not Pystar, but what is it? Responder. And these are lighter than Flask, but designed for the microservices architecture in mind. So you're going to have a lot of asynchronous stuff. And I know that's not answering your question because you're asking about like static page stuff. But uh, yeah, as far as static goes, Pelican, Pyramid, those are the two big ones. And then you can always just roll your own. I mean, the Jinja platform, which almost all of these tools are either based on or utilize, uh, it's really easy to work with. So explain like I'm five what Jinja is. So Jinja is a templating engine for Python. Okay. And the way that that works is you create an HTML document. And I think this is why I like Vue so much. So similar to Vue, you would add template code into the HTML and you actually okay. use the double curly braces. Okay. I'm tracking and all that. Gotcha. And then you just tell it to render and you give it the variables that you want to replace in your template. And then it spits out your HTML. So I can say that um, the JavaScript ecosystem has some very powerful and performant static site generators to the point where they're not really just static site generators. They're kind of SPA pre-optimizers at this point. So like when you hit a Gatsby site, it pre-renders as much as it can, but it can still do all of the tricks that an SPA can do 
once it actually loads. So you can get dynamic content in that site. Um, you're just kind of like pre-optimizing it for that first page hit. And then with it comes the rest of all the SBA goodness. So I'm kind of curious if Python has something similar like that where you can get some of that um, kind of like SBA magic or if there's still space for that in Python. So that is a tough question. I think that is more where the like framework microservice tools kind of come in. And right. don't get me wrong, like one of the things that I do very often is I will build a static page and throw view onto it or I'll throw uh, what is it? Axios JS to make web calls and load data, you know, at runtime instead of making it, you know, and creating a static page or whatever. I think the biggest question that you have to answer is why does this page need to load dynamic content? And, and there are good answers. I mean, if you've got someone's user profile, you don't want to have a plain text HTML document with a bunch of user profile in it. Like that's not safe or good practice. But who says you can't do both? Who says yeah, think, you can't? Um, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, I think that the there's nothing wrong with what you're describing, which is just kind of this, uh, not old school, but maybe more traditional way of serving a site. Like there's nothing wrong with HTML and CSS, but we've kind of got this thing in the community where everybody wants to use the latest and greatest, like flashiest JavaScript technology, but you can do just fine doing what you're talking about with Python and like templating or bringing in view through a CDN or whatever, and using that when you need to, and then having the rest of your content just be static, you know? So, um, it's definitely a valid, um, path to do that. And like, you can always just have Gatsby as like on its own service or something and serve that on an endpoint, you know, you don't have to, I guess, mix it with, with Python. Um, Python could, you know, if you were going to need that dynamically rendered content kind of be its own server and just work as like an API and have it interface with like a database or something. And, and that's kind of where, again, these microservice frameworks are coming in. Cause I know one of the cool tricks with responder is that you can create endpoints that are API driven and based on the results, either return static content or create a Flask micro instance, which just loads the bare bones tools for Flask, gets the content that's necessary, and then spits it out to you in HTML but it's being served through Flask. And then once you close that session, the Flask session just destroys itself. Cool. So I kind of want to move away from um, the web frameworks a little bit for a minute and just kind of ask cool. you about Python itself. Uh, itself. Uh, I've had the opportunity recently to get in touch with some local Python devs in the Orlando community and found out that you know through the Orlando Python meetup, uh, the organizer of that is very open to teaching and is just like a really good uh, person when it comes to community events. And so we've kind of brainstormed a little bit and come up with, we want to do a Python workshop in the community for free and have like a couple of sessions on consecutive weekends 
where people get together for a couple hours and then um, Michael uh, DuPont, which is the uh, Python organizer in Orlando, is going to get up and teach like a couple hour session and then everybody there will have like a little project they can work on and then get some help with to kind of learn Python. So my question for you is, what is the best way to get started learning Python? And maybe what are some of the projects that you should try and build when you're learning Python? I think the easiest way to get started, um, there's a tool called Anaconda that is a lot of Python with the Python remove, if that makes sense. Doesn't make um, any sense. <laughs> yeah. Essentially, it makes it so that you can give someone who has never ran Python before, like a USB stick, and say, run this executable. It gives you Python 3. It gives you all of the most popular packages already installed. And it's all self-contained within this USB stick. That way you don't have to install anything. You don't have to do anything else. You just have to go to this folder and call the Python that's and it's there for you. Um, that tends to be the easiest way to get people from zero to small project. Depending, and the good thing with that is it's also platform agnostic. So the setup is the same, whether it's Linux, whether it's Windows, whether it's Mac. You don't have to spend 10 minutes showing everyone how to install Python onto their platform. Now, is this like a self-contained uh, runtime environment or JDK or something like that or development kit for Python? So that's hard to say because Python is, it's not, it's like JavaScript. You, you, it runs as it's being parsed. Okay. Per se. So um, scripting so, languages. Yeah, it's, it's a scripting language definitely, but it's an awesome one. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really say that it has its own runtime. There are other Python instances. There's actually a Jython, J, uh, JYThon, which Python, I believe, over a Java-like compiler, basically. And there are definitely some projects, uh, the Beware project, which is really cool because the general idea of it is you write Python, you run it through Beware, it generates code in whatever language you need it to be in. So I write Python code, but I'm referencing this code in a Node project. So I say Beware Node.js, and it generates native Node.js. And they're right. actually very user-friendly as far as open source contribution and having a lot of different things because you got to think about that. What they're basically doing is saying print hello world is equal to console.log hello world. And you have to do those one by one. So there are a lot of individual um, packages that still need to be added and different ideas that need to be added. And they're always looking for contributors. So anyone listening to this, if you want to contribute to it. And the guy that makes it, Russell, is a really great person. I've talked with him a couple times now. 
cool. Um, going along with that, uh, so if you're an experienced JavaScript engineer uh, or somebody that's comfortable with Node and NPM um, and you're getting into Python, how different is NPM versus something like pip and package.json versus requirements.txt? Uh, I know that Python has like a virtual environment um, package that I think it's either it used to be a separate package in two and now it's like a flag in three or something like that. Um, um, but I kind of like whenever you're starting a Python project, kind of bring in dependencies, but the default is that they install to the system. So yes. can you maybe describe that workflow a little bit and kind of like, do you need to not install them to the system and go out of your way to specify this is only a local dependency or is it just like install everything on my computer and you know, YOLO, I don't care. <laughs> you definitely shouldn't do that. Okay. Um, and the reason being is, as you mentioned before, there is this big Python 2, Python 3 schism. That schism is going to be gone as of next year because um, Python 2 will no longer be supported um, on January 1st. But <sighs> trying to figure out the best way to explain a virtual environment, <laughs> that's this is actually a good <laughs> challenge. So virtual environments are in their essence a location on your file system that is not the system root where specific projects once activated will then know to pull all of their dependencies from that location and not from the system default package files. There are a few ways to go about that. Um, my personal favorite is a tool called pipenv, P-I-P-E-N-V. The thing about it that makes it so cool is that it's very similar to the JavaScript node environment in that you don't have a requirements.txt, you have a pip similar to a proc file. Uh, you basically say, here's where I want packages to be downloaded from. If you so choose, you can have it load the entire Python 3 core like runtime that's there, um, which I tend to do because that means I can run Python 3.6, which has F strings, but doesn't have underscore base numerical delineation, which just means that I can write 1 million as 1 underscore 000 underscore 000, and it knows what I'm talking about. And if I were writing something in Python 2.7, I could say in the, the folder right next to it, run Python to 7.4 and it would load that very specific Python runtime. And you can also do that at the application level where you say anything over Flask 0.9.3 is okay. Because before then maybe they didn't have some feature that you require. And 
I've only run into that once where I was using someone else's code and had the most up-to-date version of a, of a package. And when I ran it, error. And they were like, well, I'm running it and it works perfectly fine. So then I have to send them my pip file. And then I say, well, send me your requirements file or whatever. And they're, they match. And then after some research, I just discovered that like I was using version 3.1 and they were using version 2.9 and it was literally just something had been rewritten and I was able to fix it with like a comma. Okay. So it does requirements.txt is that kind of uh, like a locked version file or, or something like that. And then I guess pippy and v and pip files are kind of like this version or, or newer. Um. <sighs> Requirements does have the ability to request specific versions. The problem is it can't do dependency versioning. So Flask uses Verksug, which is like the original idea behind Flask. But Flask, or not even Flask, let's go with Request, because Request is actually about to have this problem. Request has always been a synchronous HTTP parser. In Request version 3, which they're developing right now, they're switching to asynchronous. And that's going to break something. And the way that certain things will be written in request version three will be different than version two. So I, my website, like if you go to productivityintech.com and then you go to the bottom, it'll say, follow the hundred and something people who are subscribed to the newsletter. When I generate that page, it's making a request call to that API and saying like, okay, return how many subscribers there are. If someone wanted to fork my website to make their own, requests is a dependency that I require. So while my render engine module would say version 1.0 or whatever in the, requ the requirements.txt, in the pip file, it would say render engine 1.0 dependencies request 2.8 or anything less than request point or 3.0. Okay. So you kind of get the dependencies of the dependencies is what you're saying. Yes. Awesome. So, um, that sounds like a cool package to check out. Um, if you're actually going to sit down and like build your first Python project, because just a side note, like me personally, whenever I try and learn a new language, I feel like the worst thing to do is sit down and jump on. No offense to Free Code Camp or anything, but sit down on like Free Code Camp and have to go through two hours of this is how you declare a variable, this is how you make an array, this is how you make a list or whatever. That, that's just like incredibly boring to me. 
um, yes. especially as somebody that has like a decent grasp on basic programming concepts. So what do you suggest somebody try and build uh, if they were kind of like wanting to get their feet wet in Python? Because I'm an automator, I always tell people start hitting APIs, pick up the request library. If you want to get really fancy, get beautiful soup, like beautiful soup four and start pulling data from the internet and play around with it. If you're a Trello user, that's a great one because you can use the request library to pull all of your data from a Trello board. And maybe you can play around with that. You can look at like different comments and stuff or look at all of your GitHub activity and or just whatever is interesting to you. Like my first, my learning project was a tool called show noter, which doesn't exist anymore. Don't look for it. Uh, it was designed for an online meetup that I was going to and everyone was sharing links in the chat. And we would basically have to like copy the chat and then look for all the links in that week session, which was annoying. So what I did was I created a simple regular, uh, regular expression generator that looked through the chat line by line, looking for URLs. And if it found one, it would use the request library to pull the title from the website and then just return a markdown list of the website title, which is an active link that would take you to that website. And then later on, we started getting fancy with it and doing like who, re who requested what or who brought up what and start playing around with it. So I'm a big fan of requests. I think it's fun because it's something that I use all the time. In fact, I'm thinking about doing a course called, uh, what is it? Automation for freelance developers, where I basically talk about how I generate invoices using the request library and Stripe's API and how I keep everything in sync using Zapier and how I could do other things like activate MailChimp campaign campaigns with Python. This, uh, this reminds me of, um, automate the boring stuff. Uh, very much so. so. I read the book. Like, did, did you like I it? Um, I was going to try and get Al, uh, on our podcast. I, I had thought about it because I heard him doing it. Get him but, on the uh, podcast and then get him on mine as well, because I'd love <laughs> to pick his brain. Al, yeah, Al Swigert is definitely a great person to look at when it comes to getting into Python and building things that help you directly. Yeah, it sounds like a really great uh, language and ecosystem to kind of, you know, do some automation stuff like you know, help you get things done, I guess, um, you know, on your computer or scraping or uh, filling out spreadsheets or compiling data and, and that sort of thing. Um, Open and then, Pi Excel is your... Yeah. <laughs> so last question there... I have for you um, as far as technical stuff is, are there any 
pitfalls or rabbit holes that you don't want to go down when you're learning Python or anything that, uh, you know, you're going to trip up on, or it's just going to absolutely derail you when you're learning. Um, the biggest thing is don't even begin to think about Python two. It's going away. Stay away from it. Um, the link that I sent you, it's actually in the middle of the video. So I feel bad. I just pulled it off my web browser. Um, it's called solve your code with sloppy Python, um, <laughs> or solve your problems with sloppy Python. That's what it is. Uh, Larry Hastings. It's a funny talk. It does have a point. Um, and the biggest takeaway that I get from it is remember that unless you're writing code for a production environment, the only person who will be reading that code is probably you. You don't have to make it Pepe compliant. You don't need a linter. You don't need, you know, doc strings. Comments are fine. If you want to use variable WTF is this crap, which I do have in some of my code. Meatloaf or banana in my case. Exactly. It is perfectly fine. Um, There's another talk by Raymond Hedinger, who is like the dawn of Python. He is. Guido is the benevolent dictator for life now retired or soon to be retired. Raymond is like his right-hand man who strikes fear in the hearts of every Python developer. Like he has written a lot of what is modern Python. And he did a talk called Beyond Pep 8. Like don't let being perfect in your Python development prevent you from getting things accomplished just make the stuff happen fantastic cool so um i'm kind of doing a mini tech junior episode at this point but uh now i want to move into kind of the fun stuff so anime games uh comic books all that good stuff um first off what's your favorite anime you've probably been asked this before but um actually i don't know i don't know if it has been asked who knows? It's been a few years, probably. Well, I, I am glad to be that guy. Uh, changes from time to time. My top three are Code Geass, Fully Cooley, and Assassination Classroom. Okay. Did you catch uh, the second uh, season, I guess, of Fully Cooley? No, I refuse to... Believe it exists. So, was it bad or something? I knew that it had come out, but I never watched it. No, it. (sighs) Fully Cooly as a micro or like a small little anime thing is perfect. Trying to add to that just opens the door from problems. (laughs) So it's kind of like Spaceballs 2, the quest for more money, is, is what you're saying? Yes, exactly. <laughs> there are some things that just don't need to exist, and a second season of Fully Cooly is one of them. Fair enough. Are you a Pillows fan? Well, I don't think, I've, I don't think so I'm familiar with that. They did the soundtrack for Fully Cooly, or at least most of it. Uh, huh. It's a Jap- Japanese band called The Pillows. 
So if you look up, uh, I am going to look that up now. Well, I'm yeah. going to add it to draft so I can look it up. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, if you're a fan of the music of the show, um, they have some some good alternative rock kind of uh, songs from from way back. Um, you know, my knowledge of Japanese bands has gone downhill. I I'm still a big fan of Toe. Like I listen to Toe at least once a month. It's a great instrumental math rock band. Uh, especially when you need to get stuff done. Those drums will drive you through. But I've been listening to a lot of Thai pop lately. Thai pop. Wow. Yes. I'm not. And it's, it's just interesting. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I found myself kind of getting into uh, like some Korean film recently, even though I don't know a lick about the language. Um, so like uh, I couldn't tell you the director's name, but he made uh, The Yellow Sea um, and The Wailing. And uh, there was another movie that he did. But just like some of the, the best films that I've I've seen in, in a while, um, especially The Wailing, that was like really mind blowing. So if you're kind of like one of those Evangelion people that loves the brain melting aspects of it. Um, it's, it's really something that you can kind of wrap your head around and, and really get deep into a uh, really, really cool narrative. I think m one of my favorite movies of like all time, like I made my wife watch this movie and she was just like, why are you doing this to me? It's <laughs> called the classic. It is a Korean film and it is this really cool like love story. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a softie when it comes to stuff like that, but it was such a good one. Um, what is the other the other Korean like romance comedy that I watched that they actually made an American version of? What is it now? I'll find it and send it to you one of these days. Yeah, I think uh, another film that's super famous coming out of Korea would be probably Old Boy. I don't know if you've uh, if you've seen that one. Mm -mm. Oh man, that, so they're not date movies for sure, but uh, definitely like interesting narrative and kind of like good action and that sort of thing. My sassy girl is one of them that's the one that they made an american version of um a similar movie actually i think it's the prequel to it is called a moment to remember and no prequel is windstruck the final in the movie is called a moment to remember which is a beautiful movie um it's like falling in love with someone who has alzheimer's at 27 and it's cool so good yeah, that'd be rough cool um are you a video game player or are you into uh in the games a little bit i i'm a big hearthstone player just because okay. i don't really have time to sit down in front of a console very often with a nine-month-old running around um Fair. my latest thing i i love tetris like we can talk about tetris for hours which would kill everyone listening to this but 
I I love Tetris. I'm very familiar with the history of it, the drama, the insane impact that it had on the world of gaming as a whole and how business is handled. Can you give me the uh, the two minute version of the history and the drama? So Tetris was created by a Russian scientist whose name I am not going to try. Uh, he it's based off of a Russian puzzle game where you have a set number of different shapes and you have to fit them into a grid and all the shapes are kind of similar so you have to kind of figure it out the problem with that game is obviously once you know how to do it you know how to do it so he wanted to build a game where it was that game, but it never ended. So he made it, he came up with the concept of once you came up with a line, it got rid of that line and you had to keep going. And the problem with Tetris is the same reason why entrepreneurs should not do work on their purse or on their professional devices because it was built in a Russian lab and a Russian software company. It was therefore the property of the Russian government. And because of that, he was never able to be paid for making the game because the game didn't belong to him. Now, fast forward decades later, he finally got some, you know, pay and he lives in Seattle now. But the game itself is still the property of the Russian government, but there is a Tetris organization that you can license the base rights for the game from. And that's why there are many different versions of Tetris. And there are three main offshoots of it. But again, you asked for two minutes, not. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, I didn't know that about uh, the history of Tetris. Um, There's a YouTube there documentary. A small... on oh, it. yeah. Yeah, I'm I'll, glad there's a, in the uh, chat. a brief happy ending to that story. Uh, it sounds like the yeah. guy is doing uh, well nowadays, at least. Tetris is one of those things that, and if you have ADHD or you know anyone that has ADHD, Tetris has been shown to help improve concentration in people who suffer from ADHD, including myself. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I wonder if there's a similar effect on like other kind of like puzzle games in that space. I would think so. Uh, the biggest thing with Tetris is because it is essentially an infinite problem-solving puzzle. You would it allows you to get into a state of concentration that is only impacted by your ability to solve the puzzle. So, like a flow state. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. This is uh, inspiring me to, to figure out how to make a video game version of Mancala. <laughs> oh, man. I was going to say, there is a Python version of Tetris. 
Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, have you ever tried to recreate Tetris with like Pi game or something? I have not. Um, I like Tetris way too much to want to destroy my love for it by making it a game. <laughs> yeah, I saw somebody, uh, another engineer that I met through my meetup um, that had built out a Tetris clone with like just JavaScript and HTML. I was like, this is awesome, but uh, I don't envy having to figure out how to do this. No, there's a, for the longest, I was playing Tetris in like an Excel spreadsheet. Someone had made Tetris with like Visual Basic and that just sounds terrible. Yeah, thanks. Cool, so um, I could keep going all night, but uh, I don't know how long your your after show segments run for. Um, I've had... 15 minutes i've had two and a half hours <laughs> <laughs> i say as long or as little cool cool um i think i, I can wrap it up there but uh awesome. yeah thanks for uh thanks for having me on the show and and letting me blast you with questions for your after show segment <laughs> absolutely let me stop my